Episode 75, The Congress of Vienna. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. So, I have to start this episode by saying the Congress of Vienna, well, it isn't a very dramatic moment. There's no big battles, there's no great drama, there's no moment of someone standing on the Mont Sacré declaring that they will not rest until Europe has all signed this treaty. Uh, It's not that kind of a moment. But it is a very important topic, and the agreements that will come out of the Congress of Vienna will shape Europe very decidedly for the next 100 years or so. And the Congress of Vienna was also responsible for temporarily shoring up the monarchies of Europe, keeping them preserved for a little while longer. But we'll also come back to that in a minute. Before we talk about what the Congress of Vienna was and why it was called, we need to talk a little bit more about the background of Europe at the time. We've already talked about Napoleon and how he conquered basically all of Europe, and then he was stupid enough to invade Russia and was beaten by the Russian winter. And after that, he was driven back to France by Russia and by the other countries of the coalition that had allied themselves together to defeat him. Those other countries, besides Russia, were Great Britain, Austria, and Prussia. These were the great powers of Europe. Now, we need to talk just a bit about what Prussia was at the time. Prussia was a mostly German-speaking region, but it was not Germany, at least not what we think of as Germany today. Prussia corresponds sort of to what was East Germany during the Cold War, sort of. And thinking about what was West Germany during the Cold War, back during Napoleonic times, that area was a conglomeration of loosely affiliated small German states, which had a complicated web of alliances and counter-alliances. And some of them were part of the Holy Roman Empire and some weren't. This part of Germany was more like a group of allied small countries. Prussia, farther over to the east, was the second biggest German-speaking country after Austria, and Austria was one of the real powers. So the biggest powers of Europe were, starting at the top, Great Britain, then France, Austria, Russia, and then Prussia, and all the other smaller countries somewhere underneath that. Now France had basically been squeezed back to its original borders by the other four countries after the defeat of Napoleon's Grand Armée, but it was still one of the five powers. Of course, like I said, there's a lot of other countries in Europe, but these five were the main ones. There's a quote from a historian named Mark Jarrett that I like, and he said, Europe was ready to accept an unprecedented degree of international cooperation in response to the French Revolution. So in response to the French Revolution and Napoleon and all the damage that that had done all over Europe, Europe was ready to come together and cooperate to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that type of European cooperation had been rare. So after the coalition had driven Napoleon back into France and he had abdicated his throne, the four powers, minus France, talked amongst themselves and they declared they decided that what they needed to do was to create an arrangement, a permanent arrangement, that would preserve a balance of power amongst all the main countries of Europe. Now, this idea, a balance of power, is the key idea behind what's going to become the Congress of Vienna and its subsequent treaties. 
What had happened before, and I mentioned this in the episode on the Industrial Revolution, that upset the previous balance of power was that France, even prior to Napoleon, had begun to substantially modernize and re-equip its armies. And as the French armies got stronger, the Austrians and the British saw this, and the Prussians as well, and the Russians, and they all began to re-equip and build up their own armies to protect themselves from the French. And of course, the French saw this counter build up, and they felt they had to keep building up their armies to protect themselves from the growing Austrian and British armies, for example. It's kind of a vicious cycle, and we'll see it happen again in Europe right before World War I, and again right before World War II, and again during the Cold War, but that time the United States was involved. And on the other side of all this military escalation, what happens is if you have a country that has a really big army, it sort of has to put that army to use. As a civilian leader of a government, you really don't want a big, restless army with nothing to do. If an army has nothing to do, it will invent something to do, and that is often a problem for the civilian government. That's essentially what happened with Napoleon. The big French army had nothing to do, and it, so it staged a coup, and it took over France and put Napoleon in eventually as the emperor. So, as a country, you have to build up your army to protect yourself. But then you kind of have to use that army, or else the army might just turn around and take over your country. So the remaining monarchs in Europe, besides wanting to protect their country, they also wanted to preserve their own situations as well, and not let the growing Republican fervor spread from France to other parts of Europe, because those other monarchs had seen what had happened to Louis XVI. Off with his head! So anyway, after Napoleon was defeated, the four other powers came together and they made a plan to preserve the status quo and preserve their own necks, and they rather wisely invited France to the meetings. They knew that France, even without Napoleon, would recover and they would be still one of the largest and strongest countries in Europe, so it made sense to include them. So in September of 1814, the five great powers sent representatives to Vienna, Austria, to begin working out a comprehensive treaty, or really a set of treaties, that would balance everyone's needs. They sent, all of them, their most eminent statesmen, and I'll mention these people in a moment. And many of the other countries and city-states in Europe also sent envoys. It was, apparently, in addition to being a large diplomatic meeting, quite the who's who of Europe, and there were a lot of high and fancy to-dos hosted by the different diplomats and royals. You were not someone if you didn't make an appearance at the Congress of Vienna. The main British negotiator was Robert Stuart, who was also the Viscount Castlereagh, and he was the foreign minister of Britain at the time. He was the highest person underneath the prime minister, so they sent him. Austria was represented by their foreign minister as well, Clemens Wenzel Nepomuk Lothar, who is better known as Prince Metternich, or just Metternich. Metternich had been one of the driving forces of the alliance, the coalition, that had defeated Napoleon. He was also a staunch royalist, and one of the ones who most wanted to preserve royal power in Europe. Metternich was also the one who had organized the whole Congress. Russia, for their part, was represented by Count Nesselrode, but he was tightly controlled by Tsar Alexander I. Prussia was represented by von Hardenberg, who was the Chancellor of Prussia. And lastly, France was represented by 
Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord, the first Duke of Benevento. He's better known as Talleyrand or Talleyrand if you're speaking with an English accent. All of these representatives were pro-royalist. And though their open agenda was to create a framework of peace for Europe, they were also really there to protect the interests of the royals, including Louis XVIII, the Bourbon king who had now been reinstalled in France. Now, the whole of the group of all the countries of Europe never met in a single meeting. So most of the work was done by the committee of the five superpowers and a separate committee of eight that also included Spain, Portugal, and Sweden. But everyone was having meetings on the side, making deals, and even signing a few secret treaties that weren't made public. For example, Louis XVIII, the new king of France, was secretly communicating on the side with Metternich to make sure that the Congress never developed any momentum in the direction of dividing up France among the other powers. Tsar Alexander of Russia also negotiated a separate secret alliance between Russia, Prussia, and Austria that was known as the Holy Alliance. They were trying to protect themselves from what they saw as secular powers in France and Great Britain. And France and Britain were having secret meetings as well. I imagine that Vienna in 1815 would have been quite the scene with parties and important social gatherings, secret meetings, people spying on one another, intrigue, and everyone just being all up in each other's businesses. The thing that everyone was trying to achieve was to agree on a balance of power between the five major powers that would preserve the status quo and keep them from needing to go to war in the future. They wanted to create also an ongoing system that would let them resolve future differences. And one of the secret things that all the non-German countries were trying to accomplish was they were trying to make it harder for the German-speaking countries to eventually unify. Now picture this, a unified German-speaking country would have included all of the small duchies and city-states of Central Europe, as well as Prussia and Austria, and that would have been a big, big change to the balance of power, because that would have created a huge, prosperous, somewhat warlike, German-speaking country right in the middle of Europe that would have been able to beat either France to the west or Russia to the east. At least on paper, it would have been able to. Later, as we shall see, this group of Germans will indeed unify and try, more than once, to defeat both France to the west and Russia to the east, with varying results. So I guess that secret agenda to keep the Germans from unifying was probably well-founded. Anyway, from 1814 to 1815, the powers all met in Vienna, in both formal and in secret settings. They weren't even dissuaded by the fact that Napoleon returned from exile, reconstituted the French army, and began starting other battles. They kept meeting despite this. After Napoleon was finally, I mean finally, defeated at Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington, who had been the commanding general of the Allied armies at Waterloo, took over as the British diplomat at Vienna. That was a high honor for him. So over the course of the rest of the Congress, they hammered out the details of treaties, borders, and trade agreements, and they basically settled a lot of issues that had been around for hundreds of years. Not everyone was perfectly happy with the results, but overall, the end result was more or less fair for everyone. And here are some of the results of the final agreement. The brand new Kingdom of the Netherlands was formed, which was made up of what is now Belgium and Holland. 
Prussia gained some territory in the western part of the German states, and this is going to be a factor in later German unification. Separately, a German confederation was formed, somewhat ruled over by the Austrian emperor. This confederation was made up of 300 small German states that had been part of the Holy Roman Empire. And again, this German confederation is going to be part of the drive towards German unification and eventually a single country called Germany. Additionally, the Congress guaranteed the neutrality of Switzerland, which was surprisingly respected even all the way through World War I and World War II. That's maybe because the Swiss banks had everyone's money and probably all their secrets as well. Also, the Congress guaranteed freedom of navigation of some of the major rivers in Europe, including the Rhine and the Danube, and that was a big first for sure. The Congress condemned, but it did not allow, the slave trade, also a big first. On top of all this big stuff, there was a ton of little stuff, mostly small territories and duchies and things like that, being restored to their previous owners and their previous royal dukes and princes. All in all, the very high ambitions of the Congress were mostly met, and it set the stage for potential peace among the major powers. But one of the things that the Congress ignored was the growing power of the middle class and the Republican movements and the influence of Enlightenment thinking on Europe. The Congress of Vienna was very, very monarchy-centered, very royalistic, and ignoring the growing noise of voices that were talking about inherent human rights, well, that was pretty short-sighted. Within 30 years, many of the countries that participated in the Congress of Vienna would experience their own Republican revolutions, though none were as bloody as France's had been. But still, a whole string of revolutions would destabilize Europe, especially in the year of 1846, which we will need to come back to. I should mention, again, the great podcast by Mike Duncan called Revolutions, which chronicles the French, American, and other revolutions, including the European revolutions of 1846, in great depth. It's a fantastic podcast. I highly recommend it. Duncan takes the opposite approach to A Short Walk, going into great depths about the events and the characters of all these revolutions. But as we are seeing, this short walk is not really that short, is it? This is our 75th episode. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. In the end, the Congress of Vienna propped up the structures that held the monarchies in place. And in many cases, these would persist until World War I, which we will also need to come back to eventually. But join us next episode as well as we head back to the United States and we take a look at the presidency of Andrew Jackson and hear what happens to the Indians under his administration. And I just want to hint at the episode after that, which is the episode that I know all of you have been most waiting for, The Republic of Texas. Texas.